How about it, Will? How about what? How about being my partner? I'm heading up north, then through Nebrera up to Wyoming. Gonna kill a couple of no-good cowboys. For what? Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is, wait, you haven't seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us had never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 71, and the movie that we watched this week was the 1992 Best Picture winner, Unforgiven. My guest this week returning is Gerald from Two Peas in a Podcast. How you doing, man? Travis, what's up, man? Thanks so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming back. So I had you were on a few weeks ago, and we talked about Heat. You had never seen Heat before. Um, we found out you liked it quite a bit. Uh, so we got to talking, and you mentioned Unforgiven. I let slip that I had never seen it before, and you were immediately on that, that we got to do that. Yeah, you know, uh, Unforgiven. You know, I'm, I'm a cinephile, right? But there's there's only a handful of movies, you know, maybe three or four that I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you've got to see this if you're a lover of movies. And Unforgiven is one of those. You know, I'm sure we'll get into different, you know, facets of the film. But it's ironic because I'm not like a huge fan of Westerns in general. But Unforgiven is in my top five movies of all time. So I just absolutely love this movie. And when I heard, knowing how big of a fan that that you are of movies and the show that you do, I'm like, well, there's no way he hasn't seen, you know, I think I gave you like three or four out of my like top five of all time. And this was the only one of them that you hadn't seen. So I'm like, well, we got to do that, man. We got to get on it. So I'm, I'm glad you did. And I'm excited to hear what you thought of it. Yeah. You know, and it's funny cause, um, getting ready to watch it. And I was having, I was kind of having to think about, um, uh, just my movie watching in general. And I realized that when I was younger, I thought I didn't like Westerns. I just mm-hmm. thought like, ah, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big Westerns fan, you know, because I, every time I would think about Westerns, all I would think about are the cheese ball Westerns or Western TV shows that never really held anything for me. What I realized was, no, I don't dislike Westerns. I dislike that. I liked like the spaghetti Westerns. I could always sit down and watch those. Mm-hmm. Um, I like John Wayne. It's just that I could only watch so much because he's always John Wayne. Like sure. he's just him in every movie. But then I got thinking about like modern Westerns and I realized, no, I like Tombstone. I yeah. like Open Range, 310 to Yuma, Silverado, like all these from the last 30 some odd years, I right. really, really enjoyed. Somehow I just never saw this movie. I'd heard good things about it. You know, obviously it won Best Picture in 92. Um, mm-hmm. And I like Clint Eastwood. So it was just one of those that I never saw as a kid. And then it just sort of slipped by and I never watched it. And boy, have I been missing out because I'll give this one away right now. I love the movie. It was really, really good. It was deserving of the praise that it gets. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, you know, this this movie for me, like I said, is in my top five of all time. And uh, it really goes back to my father introducing me to this because he was a giant fan of Westerns. And I'm talking about, you know, even back in the old days, Mm. Unsmoke and even, I mean, just... Like kind of like what you were talking about with the spaghetti westerns, but also kind of like the more cheese ball westerns, kind of. Um, he was a fan of all that stuff, and Clint Eastwood, he loved too. So you have them come, and this movie was cool because Clint Eastwood was kind of returning to that. I mean, he had been gone from that genre for a long time. I want to say like a decade, if not more. 
I don't have it in front of me, but he, he was coming back to this genre that kind of made him a movie star. Uh, you know, you could argue maybe Dirty Harry as well, but I mean, you know, he was known kind of for these Westerns like The Good, Bad, and the Ugly and Josie Wales and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And here he is returning to that, and he returns with a vengeance, man, no pun intended, with the plot line of this movie, but just like, I mean, it's got to be, you know, it's probably unfair for me to say just because I'm not a huge fan of this genre in general. But I would imagine this has got to be considered one of the greatest Westerns of all time by, by most people. Oh, I, I think so. It's one of the few, I was doing some research, it was one of the few Westerns that's won a Best Picture, right? It was this, it was Dances with Wolves, and it was one from the 30s. That name escapes me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was Eastwood's first Western in about six or seven years. He had done Pale Rider in the mid-80s. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I didn't um, know if that- I was thinking it was around 10 years, but I, I didn't know. Yeah, it was, I mean, still pretty darn close. Like he hadn't, it wasn't like the 60s and 70s when he was doing Westerns all the time. Right. Um, he he directed this too, um, which he's well known for. This is actually not even the first, this isn't the first Clint Eastwood directed film we've covered on this show. We did Mystic River back uh, January, I think, um, yeah, which is great. another great movie. He's a great director. Um, he really is. What I think what I realized was uh, with Westerns for me was it's not so much that I don't like Westerns. It was that so many of them were were the black hat, white hat, right? It was the, the good guy and the bad guy, and everything was clearly defined, and that, to me, got old after a while. Sure. Where it was, like, too much. Like, I don't mind if you have, you know, you have your definitive good guy, you have a definitive bad guy, and you have that conflict. That's great, but it would be too much of that. It would be too on the nose with it. Right. This this movie, I did not expect what it was. I don't know what I really thought I was getting going into it, mm-hmm. but it was not the movie that I anticipated it being, um, in a very good way. So, I, and I and I kind of want to get to the story of it in a little bit, but I love to start with cast and boy, talk about a good cast. I mean, you start off with Clint Eastwood. I like him because he's always he's just this like pillar of masculinity, right? He's mm-hmm. always that, whether it's in the Westerns, whether it's Dirty Harry, whether it's a war movie like Heartbreak Ridge. Um, he's just, that's who he is. He's this manly man. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, what I liked about it was you you got to see middle-aged, you know, man with no name, right? The, the guy who was, he was just, the, from all the reputation you're hearing, he's he was this super hardcore, terrible uh, law breaking, shoot him up kind of guy. Now you're seeing him in his middle age and he's a little bit broken down. He can barely shuffle pigs around in the pen. Like, right. Well, he's, um, you know, the way I take it and I just rewatched it too, just to be, you know, be in line with you. I watched it two nights ago for probably, I don't know the 50th time I've seen it. But for, for me, his character, William money in the movie is living with regret and he's living with the guilt of what he's done in his life, which was really living with no morals for the better part of his life uh, until he met his, you know, dear departed wife. And, she, you know, he mentions that she cured him of a lot of that stuff and she kind of turned his life around. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was this notorious, like almost like Billy the Kid type figure who, you know, was known for killing women and children and, you know, killing U.S. Marshals and just, uh, you know, you kind of just picture this guy just like drunk on whiskey, just, you know, throwing bullets around and killing people with no, you know, without a care in the world. And and his character is not that when we meet him in the movie. And it's him kind of trying to run away from that past and trying to uh, he wishes that people didn't know him for what he's known for. 
Yeah. Um, and and he's almost like he has a redemption story. He has a very redemptive arc in this movie. Um, his character, I mean, William Money, which I love. Oh, absolutely. No, that was one of the things that that I wasn't uh, anticipating when I started the movie for the first time. I watched it twice in the last day. Um, I watched it last night as kind of a, I'm going to sit down and just absorb this. And I have mm-hmm. my notebook with me to take notes. And I can tell where I got sucked into the movie because my notes just stopped. Right. And so then I watched it again today, a little more analytically, kind of paying attention to some things and my, making more uh, observational notes. Now sure. that I had sort of that first that first watch in, and that was one of the things that I didn't anticipate was the the depth of like hurt that this guy was going through, and this regret that he had. And he spends the first half of the movie or more, you know, he's talking about the different people that he shot and they didn't deserve it. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff and about, you're right. His wife carrying him of the drink and the wickedness is the way he, he puts it. It was a great arc for him because you get to see him going through all this. And he, I mean, he can barely get on a horse anymore and he pulls out the gun and he's shooting and he can't hit the coffee can, but obviously he can with a shotgun by the end of the movie, he's back to being, that old guy again, at least for a short period. We don't know what happens because it just sort of ends, but it was, it was this really interesting arc where he's sort of, he's trying to run away from, he's trying to get away from who he was. He doesn't like who he was. And he ends up sort of realizing like, no, I can't, I have to be this. Like this is. And he he has different, sorry to interrupt. And he has different, um, you know, character traits that he, that his character, you know, when he's talking about her, when people are talking about him, doesn't have, you know, like compassion, you know, when they uh, get to the first cowboy up there on the mountain and they, and they shoot him and he's basically bleeding out, dying. You see compassion from him where he's like, take him a drink of water. Mm-hmm. You know, that's different from the William money. That's notorious. You know, he, he was just assassinating people and didn't care yeah. even till even children even, you know, so obviously his, the growth of his character, we is implied for us, but I love how the movie and how Eastwood as a director, shows us that shows the audience that through dialogue with characters because not only is it giving us his backstory like wow this guy was was a crazy son of a bitch but it's also like creating a great like character study of William Money do you know what i mean oh absolutely um and and it's really uh it's great because he, you know he goes and he gets his friend right he gets Ned played by Morgan Freeman mm-hmm. amazing in the movie as Morgan Freeman always is yep and even right away, Ned is like, you know, maybe it wasn't so easy for us to do this in the old days. Like he, you already are getting this sense of like, he has really moved on and he can't be that person anymore. Whereas Will, William Money is still, he doesn't want to be that person anymore, but he, he knows, or he, he feels something in himself like he can be, and he needs to do this to help his kids. Right. That's why he takes the, the job. So you've got that nice kind of dichotomy going on of like one who's, wants to be away from it, but is willing to embrace it for a short-term thing. And the other one who really just doesn't want to do it anymore, but it also wants to help his friend out. Right. Right. Um, so Morgan Freeman, as always, uh, is great in this. Um, I did not expect his, uh, his eventual fate. Um, I had no idea and didn't see that coming. And almost wanted to be let down by it. So obviously this movie is almost 30 years old. We don't care about spoilers here. Morgan Freeman's character gets killed in this off screen. You never see it. 
right. I right. didn't we, expect that. We, we do see a bit of his of his torture and and his yeah. you know beating and the way he's being treated. Um, but yeah, then we hear. You know, I know we're jumping way ahead, but that's one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, if not the most powerful scene, is when him and the young boy are up on the top on the mountaintop there, waiting for her to come up, and you know they're just having that conversation back and forth about what it's like to kill someone. And obviously, William Money's done it so much that it's almost like a part of his DNA. Whereas this kid just had his first, mm-hmm. uh, and you just hear that kind of you know, a mentor kind of protege conversation that's going back and forth. And he's kind of trying to counsel the kid a little bit. Um, and then when he's met with the fact that his best friend and really only friend in the world, especially now that his wife is gone, ha- has been killed basically because of him. Um, he grabs the whiskey, which he had not touched in, I want to say 10 or 11 years yeah. in the timeline of the movie. And he grabs the whiskey and just starts chucking it very slowly, just kind of drinking and listening. And you can see that in that moment, he becomes the William Money that we that was known. Do you know what I mean? And he's yep. back to his his old self, even if it's just for a temporary period of time to kind of get vengeance for his friend. Yeah. Uh, but that get, that scene gives me chills to this day. I mean, I've seen it 50 times and every time I see it. I have to literally just stop what I'm doing and just like focus on the scene because it's just done so, so well. Yeah. No, that whole, that whole thing leading up is, you know, you're getting the, you're finally getting the admission from the kid that he had never killed anyone before that, uh, both Morgan Freeman, you know, both Ned and Will money knew like they, they already knew this kid was, was just full of it. You're getting his admission. Meanwhile, he's admitting to that and you got Will is just like, uh huh. Yep. And he's trying, he is trying to counsel him, but like he doesn't quite know how to. Yeah, I mean, he just has such good uh, dialogue in that way. He's like, you know, we all have it coming, kid. You know. Yeah. Oh man, that that one right there, that fatalistic <laughs> look, and then as soon as the the then the look of shock and uh, on his face when he's like, no, no, Ned rode south. No, he he got killed. No, Ned rode south. Like he doesn't want to believe it. As soon as he realizes that you're right, he grabbed the whiskey bottle, and I my note was actually just, oh shit. <laughs> right. Right. Because it's like, okay, yeah, now now we're getting Will money. Uh, right. Um, a switch had been flipped at that point, and yeah. uh, it was almost like he couldn't help it almost, you know? Yeah, he, he and, couldn't. Yeah. And there's so many, and they did such a good job of, you know, throughout the movie of kind of foreshadowing that because he did turn down whiskey on like three or four different occasions throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they mentioned it. Uh, he's in the bar, and when he's sick or whatever, and he pushes the whiskey away and he won't touch it, you know, when it's been known to kind of help with illness or whatever. Uh, he just won't touch it because he, he made that promise to his wife and that was what it took was, you know, Morgan Freeman's fate for him to just kind of, he couldn't help it. I mean, he was back to his old self in an effort to get revenge for him. Yeah. And it was, it it wasn't, I don't even think it was that Ned got killed. It was because Ned got killed for something that he did. Right. That Will did and Ned paid the price for it and that pushed him over the edge. Like up until, because he... You know, I have a note sitting here. He wants to be a better person. He doesn't want to go back to what that was. He's so wrapped up in, I don't want people to think of me that way. He's not giving his name anywhere he goes because he knows his reputation. You know, he talks about um, Ned's wife not liking him and having every reason not to like him because Mm -hmm. she doesn't realize that he's changed. And then his best friend gets killed for something that he did because, you know, you have the whole scene where Ned has the shot on the, the cowboy and he can't take it. Right. He's just and Ned's finally realized absolutely 100% he can't kill the man. And so 
Will takes the rifle. Will shoots him. He does it. Ned Ned pays for that later, and it just that's it. It's all over. He's gonna go. He's gonna kill them all. And he has that great speech in the street afterwards, where he talks about. He basically says, "Everybody follow the rules or follow the law. Don't do anything bad, or I will come back." Type of thing. It's, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he says you got to come back. You got to give Ned a proper burial. Yeah. And don't you know cut up or otherwise harm no whores or I'm gonna come back and kill every one of you sons of bitches. Yeah. I mean it's just like <laughs> right. whoa, whoa. And that's how the movie ends. I mean, there's yeah. a little you know like the the story like on the screen they tell where the characters are, but I'm saying as far as the action of the movie goes, that's where it ends, and it's just chilling, you know. And yeah. they have a really good. I'm sure you maybe put it in your notes, but I love how. Uh, you know Eastwood too, but his you know the people that are working with him on this movie, like the sound mixing. I love how they incorporate like the thunder. You know, mm-hmm. did you notice that when you're watching? Like yeah. when there was like a very dramatic moment, there would be like a crash of thunder. You know, and there's a lot of rain in this movie. I love the name of the town, Big Whiskey, Wyoming. I mean, yep. that's great. Oh, uh, there's a lot of little things in this movie that really add to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, it it's so masterfully put together. And it's amazing that this was the first um, nomination for an Academy Award for uh, Clint Eastwood as a director. Because prior to this, I mean, this nowhere near his first, he's directed 41 movies and he started uh, in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And it took 20 years for him to get any kind of a nomination and then he wins. Um yeah, it's just it's just one of those things where it's like there's so many little things and, and repeated watching. The second time I watched it, I started picking up on more things. And I was really noticing how the dialogue was playing out with him and with Ned and then the kid um, who was played by, where's his name? James Wovlet, but he spells James the most interesting way I've ever seen. It's J-A-I-M-Z. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of so, weird. I don't know if that was a uh, a given name or if that was a hey, I need to get into the acting guild, so I'm going to spell it different. Um, right, right. This, I'm sure we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about Gene Hackman, but as the oh, villain in this movie and the antagonist, yeah. just like I mean, he got. I want to say he possibly won. I can't remember, but I know he was nominated for this at, at a minimum. But uh, oh just yeah, tremendous Hackman yeah. performance. I, I will I will be talking about Hackman here very shortly, but I, I got to talk about this kid real quick because I thought he was pretty good. Um, I have not, I don't recognize him from anything else. Uh, apparently he did some, he's done some voice work. He's done some TV work, but nothing that I really recognize him from. I thought he was good in this. And the second time through watching it was when I started to pick up on a lot more of the foreshadowing. Cause I had, I had called that he hadn't killed anyone, uh, mm-hmm. prior to the guy on the toilet anyway, mm-hmm. but watching it the second time, I noticed how early on they're hinting at that and it is tropey and it has been done to death, but at the same time, this movie, just the way it's it's brought about, and you know, he's he's so confident, and he's so like I'm I'm such a killer, and you know that real try hard like, you know, doth protest too much type thing. But right. it's just well, it's really well done. Yeah, he wants to prove himself too. I mean, he knows you know, like the audience learns throughout the course of the movie, he knows the story of Will Money. You know, he knows this guy that's done all these notorious things. So he obviously wants to kind of, you know, live up to that to some to a certain extent and kind of prove himself. So he's overcompensating by basically lying about, you know, what yeah. he's done, what he's accomplished. And, you know, he's just kind of a dumb kid, you know, and he and, and I get that. But he's got some pretty powerful scenes, man. You know, I don't really know this dude either. I mean, I don't know the actor. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but there, he does some great scenes. There's the one altercation with Morgan Freeman towards the beginning of them all getting together on the trail 
and oh, they yeah. realize that he can't see very well because he needs glasses. And he's like, you know, shooting the canteen. And then he's like, I can see good enough to shoot this son of a bitch sitting right here in front of me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he does it as a really good, I mean, it was a really powerful scene, man, you know. And uh, Clint Eastwood was like, you hear that? He can see 50 yards. 50 yards will do just fine. Yeah. Well, and what's great about that, too, is that's such a well-written scene to give you a ton of information about that character. Not only the 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 physical parts of things like, well, he can't see that well and he's got a hot temper, but also... Like he's so all he cares about is what he can see right in front of him. He hasn't thought about what it'll be like to actually kill someone. He just knows that's what he thinks he wants to do. Right. right. And that comes back into play later because that scene with them sitting on the hilltop after he killed the guy, because you start to, you start to see him crack as they're running away where he asks, um, will ask something like, did you get him? And his voice kind of cracks as he says he did Mm -hmm. and they ride off. And then that next scene when he's taking slugs out of that bottle. And, I mean, that's a good performance because you really feel like this this kid has just been broken. And he, right. he is no longer uh, – I mean, he said he, he gives his gun away. He's like, I don't want it anymore. I'm never going to use it again type of thing. Like, it's, I ain't like you, he says. He yeah, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't like, like you. And that, that was – it's a powerful scene. So mm-hmm. I, that kid um, – and he was – I mean, I say kid. I don't know. Well, he's a Schofield kid in the in – the, I think that's all they ever call him is kid because he's known. Uh, as yeah, kid. pretty much. Right. So he was, um, yeah, I mean, he was 20, 24, 25 when this movie got made. So he was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really go on. I mean, like I say, he went on to, he's kept acting, but nothing that I could really think of um, bit parts here and there, but I liked him. I saw a dead presidents on his resume, which is a movie I like. It's a, uh, I, I just is John Hughes movie. I just don't know. I can't remember who he was in it because I haven't seen it in so long. Or, or Hughes Brothers, I'm sorry, and I haven't seen it in so long, so I can't remember who he was in that. But that's mm-hmm. the only one that I really recognized on his resume. Yeah. Um. So Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman plays Little Bill Daggett, mm-hmm. and he's the antagonist. He's the bad guy, so to speak. But what mm-hmm. I like is he he is, and he's not a good dude at all. But he thinks he is. He thinks right. he's a hero. He thinks he's the the good sheriff. He's always talking about everybody else being villains and um, you know all these villains from all these other towns that he was in and these cowards and all of that. That mm-hmm. makes for a really powerful antagonist, right? Because he thinks he's in the right. He thinks what he's doing is correct, right? Yeah, and, he's taking he's taking on that kind of savior role for the mm-hmm. town. He yeah, thinks he's their savior. You know, absolutely. You know, he thinks he's a good carpenter and building his own house, and he he wants all these things for himself, and he's just not good at it, right? He's a terror. I mean, the, that's kind of a gag, almost a running gag in the movie is how horrible the house he's building is. <laughs> right. um, but yeah. man, Gene Hackman is just—he is so good. Um, no, first of all, nobody yells like Gene Hackman ever, and right. I actually captured audio of him in that scene in the middle of the street where he's yelling because. There's just there's nothing like Gene Hackman getting angry and yelling in a movie, but he does so much in this. Like there's that whole scene in the jail cell, um, or well, he's it's in the jail cell room, um, and just the little bit of needling that he does with English Bob, where he keeps calling him the Duck of Death, and right. he, he refuses to call him the Duke, and he knows him, so he knows that he's just full of it. Um, he's just got this great presence throughout the movie. The scene with him where he's whipping Ned was like that one was tough to watch almost because you just get this feeling like little bill 
little Bill is just a bad dude. And the way he's so calm when he tells him he's going to hurt him, he's going right. to hurt him more. It's just like it get, it, it'll give you shivers. It is, and it's Gene Hackman. It's his performance that does it. Right. He's um, got two a very, very similar performances where he is upping the ante as the villain in the movie. One is where he beats English Bob in the street, which is the first time we really get to see, you know, that menace come out from Little Bill. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, when he confronts um, William Money in the bar and he ends up basically doing the same thing to him in the bar. Yeah. Uh, he just kind of kicks, kicks the crap out of him and he ends up going out in the street. The only difference is he arrests English Bob, but he lets William Money go. Um but you see that, and then and then what the scene that you were talking about as well with Ned. So there's three really powerful scenes where he's just very unsavory, and just like dialed up to eleven in terms. Of like in other words, the point of those scenes were for you to hate him. Mm-hmm. And in essence, especially if you look in terms of the old West in the 1880s, in essence, he's trying to protect his town because he knows all of these kind of assassins are going to be descending upon the town. And, you know, they, that's not going to make the town safe. So really, he's trying to protect the townspeople, but it's done in such a, a menacing way that you hate him. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the strength of this movie was nobody was good or bad. Right. You have G, uh, little Bill exactly is he wants to protect his town. He just has awkward and not unsavory ways of doing that. But he's coming from this position of, no, I'm the savior of this town. Will Money is capable of horrendously awful things, but he wants to get away from that. So they run the spectrum, which is great. I I really like how nobody is completely like a great person, but also nobody is completely redeemable either. Even Ned uh, and the kid. The kid kills somebody. He's, He's so confident that he needs to do that. You know Ned's done stuff in his past. Probably partially why he can't do it now, um, because he has really redeemed or tried to redeem himself. But even like um, uh, um, Strawberry Alice, uh, the right. the woman that kind of was the the mother of all the the prostitutes, mm-hmm. she's not exactly a great person because she just she wants heads, she wants people killed uh, right. throughout the movie. Well, so, it becomes, I mean, it really, in this movie made my, which is no shock, but it made my top five uh, revenge movies that I did a few months ago. And I want to say it was my number one. And, you know, she is living a revenge story out as well. So mm-hmm. you have the revenge story of her and the other prostitutes trying to get revenge for uh, their friend being cut up and, you know, injured and, and defaced. And then you have the revenge story at the end of the movie that, you know, William Money takes on when he finds out about Ned. So there's a lot, and revenge is a very classic like Hollywood tale that mm. will always entertain people. I mean, it's it's used over and over and over again. You know, some filmmakers like Tarantino, for example, it's built into almost every film they do right. some type of some type of revenge story that's being played out. So you have multiple revenge stories in this one movie, and it works because it's like one of them chasing the other one. You know what I yeah. mean? Yep. No, it's it's a really well put together story. Uh, with um, a good structure to it. And then it's just elevated by the people that they cast in it and the way it was directed. I mean, you even put somebody like Saul Rubinek in this, who mm-hmm. I had no idea he was in this at all. And of course he plays a writer because he only ever apparently plays writers. Um, yeah, it's true. And, you know, he's kind of in it for some comic relief, but he's great because he he's sort of an outside thing. He's not a gunslinger. He's not a anything to do with that world. 
Mm-hmm. And so he has no allegiances one way or the other. So he's constantly uh, switching sides, right? He's He comes in with English Bob, but immediately leaves English Bob when he finds out that uh, that uh, he's been lying to him or stretching the truth. Right. By the end of the movie, he's leaving Bill not so much because of Bill getting shot, although that certainly plays into it, but um, because, you know, Bill Money can can give him a better story. Like, right. He's, he's in love. Yeah, he's in love with the pageantry of it all, you yeah. know, and he, he plays kind of like the fanboy role, um, you know, where he's kind of chasing the the story that's going to turn the most pages. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And English Bob was obviously notorious, but it turns out that he, you know, fabricated a lot of the details of his story for, uh, you know, to sell more books, so to speak. Um, and then little Bill is obviously also has a pretty checkered history and his his history is also very interesting. And he also can tell him uh, more truthful versions of English Bob stories. So now he's with little Bill. So I think his character's in there to kind of give us kind of a neutral bystander kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned some comic relief, too, which is, is true as well. But also it kind of helps in that narrative structure in Eastwood kind of places his character in there, I think, at least to give the audience more details that we would not otherwise get without like flashbacks or something like that. So yeah, yeah he's uh, able to it too. Yeah. He's able to coax out some exposition without it feeling like you're getting fed exposition. Right. Right. right? Because he doesn't know. So somebody has got to explain it to him, but they, it's done in a way where it's not just like, there's a reason for that explanation to happen. There's a reason for that information to be given to somebody on screen. So that's and well done. Clever. And it was clever to make him a writer because, you know, that was something that was kind of new at the time. And they were, yeah. uh, you know, he, he did it. I felt like they incorporated that really well. And it also helped lend to the story of a lot of these characters because they're all very similar. They all have parallel kind of stories. You know, if you're looking at English Bob and then you're looking at Will Money and Ned and you're looking at Little Bill, they all follow kind of a similar narrative where they have paths that aren't, you know, they don't paint that pretty of a picture and they're all kind of outlaws in their own way. And then you have this guy that's portraying the writer that's kind of telling all of their stories, but it has to get told to him so that he knows yeah. how to record it. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps That helps the audience kind of get the backstory as well. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and we've touched on Richard Harris a couple times, but he's, he's English Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another one of those that I didn't know he was in this, but he's, he's one of those guys that can elevate something. Now I did read that, uh, early on Jeremy Irons was, um, oh, considered for the role. That would have been cool. But that would have been really cool. It would have been be interesting. Yeah. It would have been a different version of English Bob, I think. Cause Jeremy mm-hmm. Irons to me comes off, I wouldn't say more sinister, but more menacing than Richard Harris. Richard Harris was, uh, just has this like air about him that he's, he's not a bad guy necessarily like he's not he's he doesn't come off as menacing to me but at the same time he can present as um tough yeah i also think his character is like a bit pretentious too and he you know obviously thinks that you know british are greater than americans and he's kind of you know retelling that whole thing about the queen and royalty and you know, I love when he's in the barbershop and he's like, you know, just with with no regard, he's like, you know, your hand would shiver if you were about to shoot royalty. But the president, why not shoot the president? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And it's like you can tell, like, that's just what he thinks. You know what I mean? As a English person. 
Um, he just d- has disregard for Americans and their political system and like doesn't think much of it. Do you know what I mean? So that yep. kind of makes him a villain to us as Americans viewing it in a way like kind of inadvertently like, oh, this guy's kind of a pretentious asshole. Sure. You yeah, know, oh, absolutely. And then you have him meet little Bill, who is the main villain. And you have these two villains you know, I guess I'll ask you, I mean, in that scenario where you kind of because you had not seen it before, were you thinking this is not going to end well for English Bob here? Who were you kind of pulling for when they had that kind of throw down in the street there? Oh, I, I thought that we weren't I thought we were going to get English Bob shot at some point. Okay. I, I didn't think he was going to live through the movie um, because the way they portrayed him and how confident he was and what a good shot he was and, and his disdain for kind of American politics. And then he has the scene in the in the barber shop as he's getting a shave, and he's, you know, he's not he's not overly antagonistic in terms of like, uh, you know, we're better than you. Like he's not a dick about it, but mm. he he is kind of thing. Right. Um, right. He's doing it with a smile, and then he goes right outside, and immediately he gets confronted by everybody, and it's great because he has this wonderful way about him. You know, he knows he knows who little Bill is, so mm-hmm. immediately you get the sense that, oh, no, like he he knows who this is and he shouldn't be messing with him. That's and then, great. yeah, and, and and then, you know, he uh, he Bill's like, well, you have a weapon on you. He goes, well, it's just a peacemaker. Like, as long as you don't see it, it's fine. And certainly if you don't hear it, right. thinking, thinking like, I can appeal to this guy. He's a talker, you know, he's, he's uh, mm-hmm. kind of English smooth talker, you know, and I, the, the dial, there's a lot of great dialogue in that scene that's kind of built in It's kind of comedic in a way too. like, I still giggle even after seeing it so many times when, uh, you know, he says, little Bill Daggett, I thought you were dead. And he, and, he, and Gene Hackman's like, I thought I was dead too, till it just yeah. turned out I was in Nebraska. <laughs> yep. Oh, or even like, you know, oh, the story I heard was you fell off your horse drunk, of course, like yeah. going to get that little dig in there. Um, but what's lovely about that, so you have this whole scene where uh, you, you've built this character up as a smooth talker, right? He talks, he talks, he talks, he gets beat up. And the next scene he's in takes place in the jail cell. He doesn't say a word for right. that entire scene, but right. his performance is so powerful the mm-hmm. whole time. Like, you know exactly what's going on in his head, mm-hmm. the entire scene, and how scared he is at the end of it when he doesn't take the pistol knowing that it wasn't going to do him any good. And then this, that look on his face when uh, little bill starts pulling the bullets out of the pistol, realizing that yes, it was actually loaded. Right. Like all of that, that, that scene to me was might've been my favorite scene in the movie. If, yeah. if not my favorite, it was in my top three in this movie in terms of like just powerful. And I, I wrote down the note of like, he does this whole thing without talking and to have no lines of dialogue, for that character in that scene after that's all he's been that's that that's really cool i i just really like seeing that yeah i mean it's definitely you know richard harris was kind of an enigmatic role in this movie because it i mean it's definitely kind of a minor role and he and he was a bigger name especially then mm-hmm. uh and and you wonder him being placed in this movie what purpose did it really serve i guess I guess it was to show that he was another assassin that was coming to possibly collect on the the whore's gold. And then also from an audience perspective, it did add that element of showing us for the first time how vicious little Bill could be, uh, you yep. know, when he beats his ass in the street, basically, and has and, and arrests him. So it definitely does serve a purpose. It was just strange that 
I mean, because it's really a minor role. Like it's it's there's very few scenes or roles in this movie that I feel like you could do without. And I think this movie would have been just as awesome without Richard Harris in it. Of course, we're better for him being in it. I'm glad mm-hmm. he is. But it does just make me wonder if maybe he had a larger role in the movie initially and they kind of cut it down or it got on the editing floor or whatever. Uh, but he is awesome. I mean, he is he is an iconic actor. And I feel like he just absolutely nailed this role of English Bob, just this kind of pretentious English, you know, like I'm better than you person. And then he and then he gets his foot in his mouth, you know. Yep. Oh, yeah. He's totally the blowhard. And as soon as somebody steps up to him, like he shrinks and you see you see him for what he is and you get to experience that through um, W.W. Bouchot. Bouchot? Bouchamp. Bouchamp. Um, you get to experience that through him because he literally watches this guy that he was being a biographer for just crumble in front of him. Right. So yeah, it was, it was powerful. I, I like that a lot. And you're right. Richard Harris icon. Like he just elevates all every actor in this Morgan Freeman, Gene Hackman and Richard Harris are three guys that I have consistently said, elevate anything they're in. Like they sure. can be in something terrible and it just brings it up and makes it better. Right. And here you have all of them together. Yeah, yeah, and and they get to share scenes. Like it's just, I mean, it's crazy. Where the, where the hell is Gene Hackman? I mean, he's on like a hiatus, right? Did he retire officially from acting? Uh, yeah, I think TV. so. I, I I I heard an interview with him, and he was saying like he was kind of done. He did win Best Supporting Actor for this movie, by the way. Okay, I knew he got nominated. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it makes sense. And I think Morgan Freeman got nominated alongside him for this as well. He might uh, have. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so yeah, obviously Gene, not accolades for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gene Hackman last film role was 2004. Welcome to Mooseport. He pretty much, uh, pretty much retired after that. And you know, he's 90 years old now. So yeah, he's, he's so good, man. And this was definitely, you know, one of his best. Um, I've always been a big fan of his, uh, you know, Hoosiers comes to mind. Uh, he's just a great actor, man. So, and, and you didn't really get to see, you know, he was one of those people that, one of those actors that you you saw so often, particularly like in the eighties and nineties, but you just never really got to see him in a bad guy role. Uh, so to see him in this was definitely different for him, and he absolutely nailed it. Yeah, and you know he had some range to him too. I mean, because here here he is playing this guy, and he's not a good dude. Uh, a few years later, he's in the Quick and the Dead as Herod, and again, not a good guy uh, at all. Um, and then a year after that, he plays Senator Keeley in the Birdcage. Right. And it's he's just he's hilarious in that. Oh, I loved him in that. And uh, I mean, and when I say he elevates anything, like he he was an enemy of the state, and he made enemy of the state so much better for being in it. Yeah, I, I believe that. So yeah, it's definitely uh, it's a bummer that he's not acting anymore. But you know, that's his thing. He uh, there was a, a small part. Let me find it here. Um, oh, okay. So the guy that plays Skinny. Um, mm-hmm. who's the owner of the bar. This mm-hmm. was his last movie. He hasn't acted oh. uh, in on screen since then. It's Anthony James. And I'm watching the movie thinking, man, I've seen him in something before. I can't figure it out. Like Maybe it was because he had a, a role in Naked Gun two and a half, and for some reason I just remember that face. But he <laughs> he, he was in this movie, and that was it. He basically stopped uh, screen acting after this. Well, it's one, that's a way to go out, though. You know? Yeah. Uh, but but again, there were out of there were a lot of people in this film that had like recognizable faces but like I never saw them again or like I couldn't remember where I saw them you know what I mean like yes. there was a lot of kind of like 
notable character actors in the same movie. And then, you know, like even some of the ladies that played the prostitutes, like I, I felt they felt very like recognizable to me, but I couldn't place like where I knew them from or, you know, if I saw them in a movie today, I might not even realize it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the same thing with um, Quick Mike, the guy who cuts up uh, Delilah was played by David Mucci, and I kept thinking in the movie, like, what do I know him from? What do I know him from? Nothing. Can't, couldn't tell you. Looked through his IMDb. I'm like, nope, none of this is ringing a bell. Um, one of the deputies, uh, Charlie, the one that was always scared, and the only, ironically, or interestingly, the only deputy to survive the end of the movie because he ran, mm-hmm. um, was John Piper Ferguson, who's another one of those kind of character actors that you see in stuff a lot. Um, and he's kind of that that guy, that face where he he was in Drive as a bearded redneck, right? Mm-hmm. He was in Suits for a couple of years, and I always see him pop up in something, and I can never remember why I know who he is. And, and I, I his name is apparently John Piper Ferguson. Wouldn't have known that, but he's got <laughs> yeah. that face yeah. that you remember. Um, yeah, there you go. Delilah was Anna Thompson. No idea the name, but I. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, I kept trying to think why she looked familiar. The Crow. She was um, the girl's mom in The Crow that was the heroin addict. See, I'd have to I'd have to rewatch that, and I bet you once. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking of it now. Yeah, I, th- I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. In, in The Crow. So, yeah, you're right. I, I, I can place a scene with her um, doing heroin in the bar upstairs, yep. and I, I, I love The Crow, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that fairly recently. I watched it this past October. So uh, I do, I can't place her now, but that's probably the only thing I would know her from. But yeah, I like, I loved her character in this because she was very timid and very shy and kind of, I don't know, you got a sense where, you know, if Strawberry Alice hadn't been so gung ho about it, she probably wouldn't have ever even, I'm not going to say she wouldn't have cared, but I'm saying she wouldn't have like pursued any kind of revenge or anything like that. You just kind of got the sense that she was just kind of like, this is what happened to me, you know, this is what I have to live with now, you know, yeah. and I thought she really did a nice, very quiet, subdued performance t- to pull that off where it was almost like she was being forced into this revenge plot. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. She didn't want the revenge. Um, that was, that was very true. I did enjoy her in this. Uh, we had a really small role as Texas Slim, love names like that, from mm-hmm. Lachlan Monroe, a very young Lachlan Monroe, um, who, I don't know what it is about him, but man, he's, he's just got a face, uh, that you see. And if you, if you've seen him in stuff before, you just recognize him. He was in, you know, he, he's been in uh, Riverdale recently. Um, scary movie. He was in. Yeah. I know him from a lot of like oddball comedies, kind of yes. white the, chick, scary movie and shit like that. Yeah. The thing that I remember, I think the first time I remember him where it came to mind was, uh, what was the one with Mark Paul Gossler? Where, yeah, he was in Dead Man on Campus. Yeah, that's the one. Dead Man yeah, on Campus. I know him from that too. Yeah, but you know he's been. I mean, two hundred and forty-five credits to his name. So, dude works. Um, yeah, he's some. Yeah, and that was kind of cool to see him. Um, yeah, and and Anna Thompson's character Delilah. She she, and then one of the cowboys, Davy Boy, the one that gets shot and killed in the little valley there, are almost the only like good people. Like not not kind of nasty people in the entire movie. And mm-hmm. even Davy boy obviously kind of is, but he like, he really wanted to try and make amends. Yeah. And bring in the extra pony. But his partner did. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to, to have him be the one that's really remorseful and he's the first one to get killed. 
And I think he's the first person in the movie to die because the, the body count was only like nine people. Um, right. Because this really. Or in the final scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because this really was more of a, it, it was like a Western to, to, sh- to not glorify violence. Right. It was, it was very almost anti-violence in a way. Um, and one of the things that while I was watching the movie, this, especially the second time today that kept popping into my head is just recently for the show, um, we covered John Wick. Mm-hmm. There's some parallels between the two that I think some of this unforgiven story may have influenced John Wick okay. and not direct parallels and certainly not all the way through, but you've got a guy who has the past as this bad dude. And he's trying to get away from it. He wants to get away from it, but he really can't. He gets pulled back into it. Mm-hmm. That in itself, not all that uncommon. Um, that story has been told many times. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it's almost like two versions of that. Like you've got you've got Will Money in here who doesn't want to go back into it, but doesn't really have any way around it, and fights embracing it until the bitter end. Mm-hmm. And you've got John Wick, who is out of it, doesn't want to go back into it. But as soon as stuff flips, he goes right into and embraces the violence. Right. And really goes full bore with it throughout the entirety of that movie. Whereas Will Money doesn't until the very end. And he's super, but they're both brutally efficient. That, that scene in the bar at the end of the movie, Will shoots six times and takes out five guys. Mm-hmm. And wings another one plus the one shotgun shot. Uh, so he, he kills six people with seven shots. Mm-hmm. You know, that's... So it was stuff like that where it's like, yeah, that's... John Wick was much the same way where he would mow through a place where he was, you know, one or two shots per person. So I just... I, maybe it's because I just watched John Wick recently again that right. I, it was it was kind of fresh in my head, but I just felt like these were almost like two sides of that coin of that type of person. I could see that. I mean, I, you know, I've never m- made that comparison myself. I also haven't revisited John Wick in quite a few years, but I could see that. I mean, obviously they both are at the core. They're both revenge films and the arc is similar where, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I could see that. I'm going to give you a pass on that. <laughs> I like that. I think that's so good. It was one of those things where I like I couldn't I, I didn't see direct comparison, but it was it was like, OK, I think whoever. Whoever wrote John Wick um, was at least influenced by this movie. Like they had seen Unforgiven, they it was probably in their top, you know, ten or fifteen movies of all time. If you asked them, sure, um, definitely influenced. I'm sure. Yeah. So I mean, overall, like just a great movie. And oh, don't even get me started on the cinematography. Like the, the the that's one thing that westerns do so well is you've got these big open vistas and these mountains in the background and just beautiful, beautiful scenery throughout the whole thing and well-composed shots. And you had that, that amazing shot with all the snow on the ground that apparently wasn't planned. Like it just snowed and they were like, okay, we'll use it. Um, yeah, I, just, I, I love stuff like that. Beautiful landscapes. Um, you know, I actually jokingly to my wife when I was rewatching the other night, I was like, you want to move to Wyoming? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is over a hundred years ago in the movie, but nonetheless, it kind of made me want to, uh, but yeah, just very beautiful. And, you're right. I mean, Westerns in general have a knack for that because obviously they're in the old West most of the time and they're in the wilderness and whatnot. So it's just kind of pu- the purity of nature in a lot of those movies, you know? Yeah. Yep. You get a lot of that, but man, did they, they really capture it in this and they did a great job 
framing it all. And, you know, you bookend the movie. You start and end the movie with that same shot of a sunset backing this single tree next to the farmhouse with, right. you know, the character, in this case it's Will Money, out by there. You know, the beginning of the movie, it's him, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be him burying his wife. Right. And the end of the movie is when he returns and he, like, I just, I liked that. That was really well done. Uh, the music in this was was pretty good. It wasn't, I'm not going to put it in my top 10 soundtracks, but it was well, uh, it fit. It fit really well. I guess Eastwood composed the theme okay. uh, to this as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think just solid movie front to back. Now, the writer was David Peoples. And I don't know if you're familiar with that name at all, but he he doesn't have a ton of writing credits. He only has 16, and half of them are series and stuff that were based on stuff that he wrote. Mm-hmm. But he did write 12 Monkeys, this movie, Unforgiven, and Blade Runner was his, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Lady Hawk. Yeah, I knew about Blade Runner. I didn't know about the others. Yeah, and I, I love 12 Monkeys. He, it's, it's a really well-put-together script. Apparently... From my reading, it was uh, he wrote it in the seventies, um, and it it kind of floated around for a little while. At one point, Francis Ford Coppola had the rights to it, and okay. um, the story goes that Coppola wanted to have John Malkovich play Will Money. What? <laughs> yeah, and even Malkovich has said in interviews, like, "We're I'm so glad that that didn't happen." Right. <laughs> He's right. Like, I, I would have been terrible in it. I would have been. Act, I think the the phrase that I saw quoted to him was acting schmacting. Like he wouldn't have been any good at it. He's like, we're so much better off because Clint Eastwood did it. Yeah, I could. Uh, ironically, I could see him somewhat in the little Bill character, though. Like I could see that a little bit because he does play a really good villain. Um, yes, he would be a, a more over the top version. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then Eastwood got it sometime in the mid '80s. And he kind of sat on it for a little while because he liked it, but he wanted to wait until he was at the right point in his career to do it. He wanted mm-hmm. to be a little bit older before he did it. And it, it paid off. Like it was worth the investment and in sitting on it uh, for as long as he did. I agree. Um, one was the thing. Uh, oh, um, one of the trivia bits was perhaps due to winning the Oscar for best actor in a supporting role. Gene Hackman appeared in three other Westerns in supporting roles a year apart. He was in Geronimo and then Wyatt Earp, and then The Quick and the Dead, like year after the, the three years after this movie. They tried to pigeonhole my guy, so I he, guess. Had go, he had to go get in the birdcage just to kind of break that, I guess. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> oh, so yeah. good. Man, I just, now I want to go watch, like, The Conversation or something again. Yeah, yeah. Well, my Blu-ray has some great um, commentary on it, too, and interviews and stuff with Eastwood and... um the actress that plays Strawberry Alice has an interview on there. Uh, but it's cool to like, you know, see people talk about it and their experience with it. And, you know, Eastwood sounds like such a, just a compassionate director. Uh, when a lot of these actors talk about it and they kind of, you know, how he kind of lets them uh, do what they want to do for the most part, as long as they stay within the realm of the scene. Uh, so I love that kind of stuff too, that kind of behind the scenes stuff. But I just love how this movie, generally speaking, kind of mirrored his arc as a figure in Hollywood, too, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, like I said, I mean, I think you said it was seven years since since he was in a Western prior to this. But, you know, even before that, though, he was kind of known as a Westerns guy, you know, and he just kind of had started to get away from that. 
and then he comes back with Unforgiven, and it's going to obviously be considered a Western because, I mean, it, it is in that genre of film, but it's just so much more. Like, it's so different for yeah. me personally than just, like, a traditional Western, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was also the last Western he did. Well, there you go. Um, he hasn't done one since then. So uh, that's interesting. But yeah, you're right. And another thing I wanted to touch on, and I noticed this the second time, and I thought this was really interesting, is I am, I would say I would be 90% confident that Morgan Freeman was cast in the role of Ned uh, just because he was the best person to be in that role and that the character was not written as a Morgan Freeman type or even a black character. And the, yeah, I wonder, and, I wonder that too. And the reason, just... yeah, and the and the reason that popped into my head is it is never brought up at any point in the movie. And given the time period that this takes place in, someone would have said something. Like, right? Especially somebody would have. Where he's being whipped, or like yeah. you know, when he gets arrested or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have thought about that, and I thought about that more recently because of the world we live in today, right? With, you know, a lot of stuff that's going on and whatnot. And I kind of have thought about that before where I'm like, it's kind of like strange that at least it's not mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it really, the second time through. Cause what been I, like, it would have been like 15 or 16 years prior to the events of the film that the civil war would have happened. Right. Right. Cause this would have been right around, I think it's supposed to be like 1880 to 1881. Cause, uh, English Bob is talking about the assassination of a president, and that was James Garfield, which would have been 1881. So it pretty well timestamps it there. But right. you're right. Like, it, regardless, like whether or not you were five years away from the Civil War or 25 years away, like there's still somebody would have said something. Somebody right. would have made some mention of when he came into town. You know, all they say is three guys came into town. That's not. I, I'm sorry. Like right, nobody would right. have would have worded it that way. No, you're right. I mean, unless there was something done in post in the editing room. But yeah, I mean, I've never seen the screenplay for this movie, but I have thought about that before where I felt like they just left it out because they didn't want to deal with it, maybe, you know, from a PC standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is kind of strange because obviously if you're 15 years from the Civil War, I mean, we're in 2020 and people, half the country still racist. So, yeah, (laughs) I can only imagine in 1880. Um, you know, people weren't necessarily probably really welcoming to black folks coming into their town. So no, not at I, all. I, I, and and I, I think, yeah, I think it's a credit to, to clean Eastwood as a director to probably make that decision, whether it's in the script or not, he may have made that decision. I don't think it was in the script. And I like that. I, I, it was something that I only noticed it on the second go round because kind of because of the climate of the world we're in right now, where I'm like, Oh, wow, nobody's making mention of that at all. Like, it's not brought up. It's just, he's just another person. And I I really appreciated that because you could interchange him with any other actor, but man, having, having it be Morgan Freeman just makes it that much better. So, yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. Barrett, I mean, if it was written, if his skin color or race was meant to be part of the Ned character, then you got to imagine they could have, I mean, very easily, even if it was like one sentence or two when they're sitting around the campfire. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he would have been involved in the civil war or at least, you know, I mean, that was only 15 years before and he was what in his fifties in this movie. Yeah. So, right. I mean, he would have been, he could have made, had a little story about the war or like, you know, something he experienced from, you know what I mean? Like, even if it was just a little thing when they're sitting around the campfire, but none of that's ever mentioned. So that leads me to believe that 
you know, Ned was not written as a, you know, post-Civil War black man. Yeah. Just because that's missing, if that's the case. I mean, I don't care. Like, it doesn't no. hurt the film for me in any way. I can just tell that that is a, something that they just never address, perhaps. Yeah, and, and, and no, it doesn't hurt the film for me at all either because I actually appreciate that. I remember, like, not exactly similar, but I remember when I first started watching some of the um, the Flash on CW. Because I'm, I'm a big fan of those shows. Mm-hmm. And early on in the series, um, one of the characters uh, makes mention of his husband. And it's just said in passing, and no one says a word about it again. And, I was, and they do that like two or three times in the first couple of episodes. And it got me thinking, like, well, that's great. That's not like him being homosexual is not a part of it's a part of who he is as a character, but it is not who his character is. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of the same thing I'm thinking here is like Morgan Freeman playing Ned and Ned being a black man in the 1880s. It's part of who his character is. And as it being Morgan Freeman, you get that feeling, but it's not what his character is. Mm-hmm. And so by, by extension, nobody in the movie mentions it. It feels a little bit out of place when you really think about the time period, but in the story that they're telling in this movie, it just works. Um, and I just, I appreciated that. And I, I wanted to mention that because I thought it was interesting that they no. just don't mention it at all throughout the entire movie. For sure. And I've noticed that before too. I, you know, I've, I don't spend like deep thought on it because for me, the movie's amazing, you oh, know, regardless. Absolutely. I mean, they could have added a sentence, you know, Ned could have said one piece of dialogue that would have, you know, given to his character being black. But I mean, was it really necessary? No. I mean, it's, it's still an amazing film. So, yeah, no, this, this, so 1992, it came out, which means it has been what? 28 years, roughly. Um, and I slept on this movie for pro- at least the last 20, <laughs> at least. And boy, was that a mistake because mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is definitely going into, into kind of a regular rotation of movies that I'll, you know, I'll come back and revisit every so often because it's that good and it's that interesting of a story. And I think there's even more that I'll get out of it the more I watch it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got, you know, obviously it, you're going to immediately think of the Western aspects, but I mean, it's got comedy in there, obviously drama. Uh, you know, you, you feel compassion for these characters. It's a great character piece on William Money and kind of his, you know, the, the story of Unforgiven is really his arc, his redemption arc. And I mean, his personal redemption, uh, you know, Unforgiven, you know, the title of the movie, you know, he is his past is not going to be forgiven. Uh, and that's kind of, to me, why they, why the title is what it is. I mean, it's, it's William Money's story. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's an amazing revenge movie, which like I already said, I mean, revenge movies always play really well, typically speaking from a cinematic value perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the best revenge movies. It's one of the best Westerns. Uh, it's, in my opinion, Clint Eastwood's best work behind the camera. Uh, you know, the little hints of, like I said already, the rain and the thunder, whenever there's like a dramatic pause in the movie, you would hear this little loud crash of thunder. Uh, did you want to talk about the last scene, the shootout in the saloon there when he finally gets to town? Yeah, I do. So it's great because now you see Will Money as Will Money. Like he, there's no, there's nothing tentative about him at all. He, he is laser focused and he literally just walks right into the bar, like he walks past Ned, and that's a that's a chilling visual to see Ned propped up with a sign in front of him in that coffin. But he just walks right past it, right into the bar where all of them are standing with the shotgun. He's going in there like I'm going to kill them all, like 
doesn't matter. And it's such a well staged out thing too. Yeah. And he's going in there, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, he gives the money to the kid and he says, you know, if I'm not back in a week, you know, give my half to my kids and like, whatever, whatever. Uh, and he, you know, he is, he has to fulfill what Ned told little bill. He said, if you don't stop, you know, beating me and you don't stop torturing me, he's going to come and kill you just like he did all the other people that I've told you about in the last, you know, 20 years. And that he says that didn't scare little bill did it. And he went in that saloon to kill little bill. So he, as long as little bill ended up dead, it did not, it it was not even in his mind if he was getting out of there alive. Do you know what I mean? He was there. He was there to finish that for Ned and finish that part of, of the, that chapter for Ned. And then it just turns out that he is the old will money. So it turns out that he does still have these skills in gunplay or whatever you want to call it to where he can, he's just the better person in the room, you know, like he's the better shooter in the room. So he's able to take these guys out. You said six people with seven bullets and it sounds about right. Uh, I was rewatching it, you know, the other night and I know you'd only seen it now two or three times, but I think it still plays really well. Like it's still pretty believable. You know, I remember seeing it in the theater, which by the way, I went to see this in the theater with my dad nice. in 92. And it was one, it's one of the greatest memories of going to see that with him in the, in the, on the big screen and, and seeing it now, you know, 27 years later or whatever, I, I think it's still sh- shot pretty well to where it's still pretty believable. What do you, what did you think seeing it the first time? Did you think that scene, like, was it believable that he did what he did there? Absolutely. And, and the reason that it worked so well for me was they set it all up halfway through the movie, the scene in the jail with English Bob and everything that little bill is telling to WW about being in a gunfight Mm -hmm. and how it's not who's the fastest and who's the quickest on the draw. Mm -hmm. It's about keeping a level head. It's about not rushing yourself it's about uh, you know who who that person is. That's who's going to win it. And you know he keeps asking, well, yeah, but if he's quicker than you, well, then he's going to make a mistake. Well, yeah, right. but if he's faster and he doesn't miss, well, then you're going to die. And that is what Will Money is when he goes in there. He is level headed. He's he's had some drink. He's had something to drink, right? Because they show him throw the empty bottle. Right, right. But that's what focuses him. Right. That's what he's- brings him into who he is. And so it's he takes one guy out. And if you notice, like. The way they shoot that, all the deputies are are rushing and they're shaking and they're struggling, and he's just calmly shooting each one of them and taking mm-hmm. them out. So absolutely, I believed. Uh, I, I thought that was a really well put together because this movie basically showed its hand early on and said, hey, this is how this is done. He comes back around and shows you, yep, that is how it's done, and I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. I love when Little Bill says, I'll see you in hell, William. And he says, yeah. Yep. Oh, I love, I love, first of all, I love the, I'll see you in hell trope. That's always great. Um, and it's, yeah. And again, uh, to bring back some parallels with John wick, they do that same thing at the end of John wick where he says, you know, instead of I'll see you in hell, it's, I'll be seeing you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the response is just, yeah. And it's the Mm -hmm. same thing. Like that was great in this, Mm -hmm. just that whole, the whole end of it was, was a nice bow to wrap everything up. It's what they've been setting you up for the whole time. And it does it, but it doesn't glorify the violence either. Right. It's right. over with super quick and it's efficient. Mm-hmm. And then he's, you know, he's angry, but then he just leaves. He's like, that's it. I'm done. And he's out. 
yeah, he yeah. took care of business, you know. And uh, I don't remember what the last title card says, but I want to say he like takes his kids and the gold rush and moves out to California or something like that. Yeah, so something, he, something along those lines. Gives you a bit of hope that you know he was able, to, you know, to live out his life without violence and without you know being an outlaw and just able to raise his kids, especially with this little nest egg. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he he was doing a he was doing a good thing if you really think about why he did this particular hit. Um, especially in comparison to what he had done or what we had heard about him doing in his previous life. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, and, you know, this movie had right before that scene, one of the better, I, I kept hearing some, um, my guest last week, Adam of Geekheim, when I mentioned that we were doing Unforgiven, he's like, oh, that movie's got one of my favorite lines of all time, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. He's like, I want you to see it first and, and you'll probably know what it is. And I know exactly which line he's talking about because Damn, if it's not one of the better uh, bits of uh, written dialogue that I've heard in a movie, and I captured it because I have to, and I'm going to play it right now, but it's the hell of a thing. It's the hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever going to have. And I cut that down a little bit because there's more dramatic pauses, but man, that's such a good line. It is. Yeah. And that's you feel that that's really how he feels. And that's why I said earlier we were talking about that scene, that whole scene. I mean, the whole thing, even the kids uh, narrative part when he's, you know, telling him how he feels from having his first kill. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy how he's not going to be here anymore. He was taking a shit and, you know, I killed, you know, and he has that whole thing. And uh, William Money's done it so many times that he probably can't even remember the first one. Just because it's so blurred together now, and he's just like, drink up, kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, there's nothing you can do. I mean, it's a hell of a thing, you know? And my favorite line, which which we already touched on, is, well, I mean, he says, you know, it's, it, he said that it plays out where he's like, you know, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. And, uh, and the kid goes, well, I guess they had it coming. And he goes, we all have it coming, kid. Oh, you yeah. Know, that's that's my favorite line. I don't know if that's what your friend maybe was talking about or if he was talking about that one. But I guess it could have been. And I captured that one, too, because um, that's that's a great one. We all have it coming, kid. Because that, that's a man that has seen a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then you had, like, some of the better, even even his dialogue, even the way he spoke when he got into the saloon was a different person, was a right. different Will Money. I mean, he yeah. shoots skinny. And Gene Hackman, you know, Little Bill's like, well, way to go, you coward. You shot an unarmed man. And that's a great exchange because it just, it sounds like this. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. I mean, makes sense, right? He should have armed himself. He should have armed himself if he's going to decorate his saloon with my friend, he says. Oh, so Uh, good. He's, I love when he's just in there just fucking taking care of business. He's like, anybody that doesn't want to get killed, better head on out the back. <laughs> yep. He'll, he'll just kill them all because oh, he's yeah. the old William Money now. Like, he'll kill all the prostitutes in there. He'll kill – like, he'll just kill anybody in there now because he's, like, a different person. He's, like, possessed almost, yeah. um, you know, at least until he leaves on his horse. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know I love this movie. I pitched it to you. I'm glad you finally watched it, so. Yeah, no, was, this was good. Thank you for suggesting it because I really like that. And uh, one more line I got to play just because um, this one was too good is uh, is Saul Rubinek's character is trying to get more info out of him. Like he's still right mm-hmm. up until the better end wants to you know, who'd, who'd you shoot at first? And you get the story and he takes the rifle after he's loaded it. He points it towards him and just says, all I can tell you is who's going to be last. 
I love that. <laughs> and that and, menacing Eastwood uh, vernacular too. You yep. know? Oh yeah, and that's enough for for Bouchamp to just be like, and I'm out. I'm yeah. I'm leaving now. Um, exactly. Yeah. Oh, so good. This was th- this is a hell of a movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, first of all, go, just go go watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I and don't I, be and don't be and I'll tell your listeners too. Don't be swayed by the western um, genre at all. either. No, I'm don't. not a huge fan. I'm not a huge fan of westerns, and this is probably my number two or three movie of all time across all genres. So you don't have to be a fan of westerns to enjoy this movie. I think if you're a fan of westerns, you'll probably enjoy it more. Um, but you're going to like it regardless. It, it's just such a good story and such a good character piece. Yes, and that that's what does it is it takes it takes the genre of westerns. It kind of turns it on its head. It takes the the old idea of good guys versus bad guys, and it blurs the lines of everyone and throws them all into this big soup. And then it gives you these character studies, and you get this this wonderful character study of Will Money and who he is and where he's come from. And it's it's just a great arc, and it's well it's masterfully directed and the writing was spot on and then you you just have a cast that is one hit after another so yeah absolutely i completely get how this makes uh lists of greatest westerns of all time and makes the you know thousand and one movies you need to see before you die and i i see it come up on a lot of lists and mm-hmm. it is 100 percent deserving of all of that i agree it's, it it has moved into one of my favorite eastwood um films both acting wise and directing because I love Mystic River, and he he directed that. He's not in it, but that's a great movie. Mystic River's great. Uh, Unforgiven is my favorite, but I also love a, a lesser known movie that he was in and directed that came out a few years after this called A Perfect World, mm. with uh, Kevin Costner's the lead role in it, and um, Eastwood plays like this Texas marshal that's chasing down uh, Costner, who's an ex-convict and has kidnapped a little boy, and they're on the run together. Yeah, in uh, nineteen sixty or early nineteen sixties in Texas. And it's called a perfect world. That's my. That's a close runner up for me. Uh, it's a very. It's actually very similar to Unforgiven, but just told in in a 1960s setting. Uh, but I'm talking about like the story arc is very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say look up, especially if you enjoy Eastwood as a director, look up a perfect world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just good. Uh, I mean, if I were grading it, you know, it's going to be eight, nine, ten up in that upper echelon. Like just knocks it out of the park with unforgiven so yeah i mean you know it's a 10 out of 10 for me so yeah well hey you know and you 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 prop this movie up and it over delivered on those expectations so i'm glad i I was well i was telling you before we started recording but the other night when i was rewatching it uh for the hundredth time i was like man you know i actually i hope travis likes this (laughs) it's gonna be horrible if i have to like tell him why i love it and he doesn't understand it so uh, which of course is fine. I mean, you know, film is subjective. I didn't know what your tastes were and things like that, but I was kind of nervous for a second because I'm, I'm thinking it's amazing as I'm watching it, but I'm like, man, I wonder if he, if this is going to speak to him. So well, I'm, and, glad, I'm glad that it did. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And genre films are always going to be the harder ones, right? Like it's one thing to do a drama, but when you're then it's a Western drama, like now you're, you're, you're slicing down that pie and you're getting a smaller subset of people that like both of those things. Or uh, I've I've really loved certain movies, and then it's like, oh, yeah, but it's sci-fi, and I can't stand sci-fi. And, it, you know, it's a bummer, but it happens. This right. just happened to be like this transcends. It's not a Western. It's it's a drama that happens to be set in a Western town. Right, right. So, 
Yep, absolutely. Yep. Totally, totally worth it. Thank you for suggesting it because this was a, a great movie to watch and this was a fun discussion to have. Yeah, of course, man. I had to pay you back for Heat because I enjoyed that uh, <laughs> yeah. a ton. Oh, and I had never seen that one. I couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad that we both enjoyed the other one's suggestions. Absolutely. Well, so we've mentioned it a few times with uh, your show, but uh, let people know where your show is and kind of what you got going on. Yeah, thanks, man. I mean, you know, uh, you're actually on an upcoming episode that's going to come out a couple weeks from from right now as we're sitting here uh, where you and I discuss our top five movie chase scenes. That was which fun. Was, uh, which was a lot of fun. That'll be out in a couple of weeks for the public, but we just do a fun top five show. So it's me. And then I have a different guest host every week and I have the guest hosts, I would say eight times out of 10, they pick the topic. So they come up with a topic that they want to count down in movies, music or television for the most part. Sometimes we'll venture out into pop culture and do kind of abstract topics. But for the most part, it's movies, music and TV. And uh, they come up with a topic, come on the show, and we count down our five favorites in that whatever the category is. Like I said, me and you did movie Chases, which was a blast. And um, the one that just came out was our top five skits from Saturday Night Live that a buddy of mine pitched. Nice. And we count we counted it out on the all-time SNL skits. That was a lot of fun. So, you know, you can find us on Twitter at 2Ps on a pod, and that's T-W-O spelled out. And then we're hosted on Podbean. So you can find us on all the podcast platforms under 2Ps on a podcast. And uh, as always, man, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun to discuss Unforgiven with you. Absolutely. And and for people who haven't listened to Two Peas yet, one of the things I really like about it, and not just because I was on it, but what I like is how you and your guest both will come up with stuff in your top fives that you wouldn't think of. Like mm-hmm. you, you always get these kind of out of left field like, oh, man, I didn't even think about that as like whatever topic. And it's great because right. it's not your, your standard, oh, everybody's top five is this, 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 and this. Like. Yeah, that was that was what I really liked about our conversation with the the chases was we both came at it with this idea of like, well, it's not just a car chase like the chase means so much. Right. And you hit me with one actually with your number five that I was like, oh, my God, yes, (laughs) that is great. And I never thought of it. And it's one of my favorite 80s movies that you named. I don't want to spoil it here. Uh, But yeah, you know, thank you for mentioning that, because that was kind of a a rut that we got in a couple of years ago. And that's why I kind of twisted it a little bit to where I'm like, look, whenever somebody comes on, I just say just your five favorite. I don't don't worry about what, you know, Rolling Stone magazine says or what Google says or just what are your five favorite if you were making a playlist or if you were having a movie marathon, you know, in whatever the category is, what are the five that you would pick? You know yeah. what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. what makes for an interesting conversation because then you're getting people's personal preferences and opinions and not, you know, what you'll find on any website that you look up today. Do you know what I mean? So absolutely. I'd always thank you for saying that because it all it does always add a little bit of it. And it also adds that thing where people hit you up after and go, I can't believe you didn't name X, Y, Z. What the hell is wrong with you? you right. Know? It is like, well, yeah, but, you know, it's amazing and I understand why it's amazing, but it's not one of my favorites. Exactly. Know? Yeah, and it's you know it's subjective, which it should be, and I, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I love the show that you you put together. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and um, uh, I really enjoyed being on. So, thanks for having me on, and thanks for coming on today. Uh, this was a great conversation, and now I get to I get to fill that hole in my movie watching, uh, and yeah. now I can say I've seen Unforgiven. So, ton of fun. Um, awesome. So, yeah, this show is every uh, usually Sunday nights. Whenever I'm uh, on with you, though, Gerald, we do Saturdays, uh, and I have no problem doing that. We, you know, I put it out as a podcast midweek. Um, next week, I'm actually covering Tron, uh, the 1982 Tron. So that'll be fun because I love this movie, and I found somebody who hadn't seen it before. 
Um, so we're actually going to be talking about it and Tron Legacy on his show coming up. Uh, and I was like, well, as long as you haven't seen that, like we can do a little back and forth on there. So well, that's, cool. be, that, that's a lot of fun. Um, I really like Tron. Um, yeah, so I have fond memories of it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, obviously, I saw the most recent um, that was like, I don't know, what was that, seven or eight years ago? Yeah, but something I, like that. I haven't seen the one from the 80s in a long time, but yeah, I I'm, do love I'm I'm looking forward to rewatching it, too. I love Jeff Bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, I also started a new show for anybody listening to this who doesn't know called Let's Watch Highlander, uh, where myself and my friend Audie Norman are going through episode by episode of Highlander the series and uh, mm-hmm. breaking those down. We were doing them as watch parties. Unfortunately, it got taken off of Amazon Prime. So mm-hmm. now we're just doing the podcast. But uh, we are just starting. So we're still in season one, and the episodes are a little rough. But we're having fun with it. Um, <laughs> and that is uh, that comes out on Thursdays um, as a podcast. And we, we do stream uh, a little bit for it, too. But with that one, uh, it's very segmented. So it gets edited down quite a bit. Um but yeah, I, I, I want to thank you again for being on. This was a ton of fun. Um, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll find more movies that one of us hasn't seen, and uh, you know, I'll give oh, you sure. I'll give you time to to rest. And you know, you got young kids too. Oh, but, bro. Uh, yeah. definitely have you back on. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And I'll find we got to you got to pitch me some more topics to come back over on the main show on two piece too, and uh, we'll have you back over there because that was a blast to discuss movie chases with you. Absolutely, I'm I'm working up ideas as we speak. So. Nice. A lot of fun. Uh, until next time, until next week uh, with Tron, I just want to tell everybody to, um, you know, it's a weird world out there. Be excellent to each other. Enjoy your movies. And this has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>